Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Delancey. Today I'm joined by Leclerc Laberge, who is the author of Wages Against Artwork, Decommodified Labour and the Claims of Socially Engaged Art, which was published by Duke University Press in 2019. Before we begin, I have to make a little spoiler in the form of a note for our listeners who came across this episode on the Animal Studies channel. This is not a mistake. If you'd like to skip straight to the second half of a conversation where we'll be talking about the role of animals in contemporary art, I'll include a timestamp in the show description. With that out of the way, welcome to the show, Leclerc. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for joining us. So in Wages Against Artwork, you look at a phenomenon of artistic labor that is becoming divorced from traditional forms of pay, that is, from wages. Artistic education, much in line with other university education, is increasingly seen as an investment, but the terms of return on such investment are not necessarily clear. The pandemic has highlighted some of these issues, but they have been playing out in the art academy and in art institutions since the 1970s, particularly under the auspices of socially engaged art. I'd like to start by asking you about how your interests in this field have developed, given that you previously engaged with a very different kind of an industry. Yeah, my previous book uh, was called Scandals and Abstraction, Financial Fiction of the 1980s. And um, I wrote it, um, let's say, between 2006 and 2012. Uh, so during both the, the sort of height of... Um, of financial uh, leveraging and speculation in the United States, and then in the sort of um, depths of the despair of the what what has come to be called the the Great Recession. Um, and by 2012, I was I was living in New York City, and um, I was seeing the sort of post Great Recession world emerge, um, in which there were new popular and cultural claims on what a political economy um, is and could be and who could produce knowledge about it, who could critique it, how it should be represented. And those were the kind of claims that in my first book, Scandals and Abstraction, um, I had dealt with looking at very canonical 1980s literature, things like The Bonfire of the Vanities or American Psycho. and working with canonical texts has its own um, its own possibilities. There's a lot of criticism about them that an author can use, um, but it also has limits. For example, uh, it's much harder to talk to or get an interview with somebody like um, you know Don DeLillo or Brett Easton Ellis um, than it is a contemporary artist. Um, and in 2000. 12, after Occupy Wall Street, a collaborator of mine asked if I would be interested in doing a show about artists in debt. Uh, She was then working at the Elizabeth Foundation for the Arts, which is a contemporary art center in New York City. Um, And she felt that um, in the wake of Occupy Wall Street, 
uh, there was sort of an incredible conversation germinating amongst artists about what it meant to live and work as an artist. And um, it was then that I started to notice that the operative sort of um, idiom or language that artists were using uh, to talk about their own economic conditions was not something like finance or financialization um, or leveraging or securitization, um, but was really about labor and debt. Um, and so when we started to curate this show that opened in 2012, it was called To Have and To Owe. Um, I think it was one of the first shows actually to really look at the relationship between arts production and indebtedness. Um, we, we got we got a wonderful sort of uh, reception, but it also alerted me to the fact that um, as a as a scholar who works on the relationship between economics and culture broadly defined, there was an opportunity to sort of um, capture and engage a different level of that relationship. So now it wouldn't be between sort of uh, popular literature, canonical literature, and finance, rather it would be between emergent artistic production and an emergent conversation about the economy in which that participated, which was, in, in the words in 2012, 2013, it was debt, and there was a group that came out of Occupy Wall Street called Arts and Labor. So somewhat, there was also a conversation um, about labor. But um, I wasn't trained as an art historian. I was trained as a, as a literary critic. Um, and so I was quite new to that um, scene. Um, so I was very lucky that through curating that show, I was introduced to the work of a lot of people, um, people like Caroline Woolard, uh, Cassie Thornton, um, Caitlin Berrigan, who wasn't in the show, but who I ended up meeting through the show and writing about. Um, and they were actually quite interested as artists to develop a relationship with critics who could highlight um, and sort of broaden this aspect of their engagement. So in a certain way, it was kind of an organic synthesis, uh, being in the right place in the right time. Um, in a little bit of a more abstract way, um, I see it as a continuation of my work on political economy, which is what is the relationship between a given historical moment's um, economic formation and the cultural residues and products that seek to both sort of capture and critique that moment. And, and what is the sort of intercourse? What is the sort of back and forth between these two somewhat disparate um, realms of social life? Well, being at the right place at the right time does seem to be the origin story of much great research and great writing. And I'll mention for our listeners that you, in fact, spoke about your book Scandals and Abstraction on a previous episode of the podcast. And I'll put a link to that in the show description. Um, what I think is intriguing, both in that work's treatment of the finance industries and now in your treatment of a particular segment of the art world in Wages Against Artwork, is your disciplinary approach, which you bring from literary critique. With that in mind, I wonder if you could introduce the idea of decommodified labor, which you bring straight out with your title. Absolutely. And I'm going to do that in two ways. Uh, one, I'm going to do it in a sort of empirical register. Um, and then secondly, I'll do it in a more sort of critical theoretical register. Um, so in an empirical register, and I, I should note uh, for listeners uh, that the book 
mostly, not wholly, but mostly um, is, uh, takes place in the United States. The artists work in the United States or um, they are American or they cross through the United States. Um, so this empirical history that I'm going to offer is very much um, United States dependent, although I think it, it no doubt has some parallels probably uh, in the UK and Canada, I think less so in continental Europe. Oh, it certainly does. And, and not only in the mapping of a parallel or perhaps a precedent history, but with some of the case studies that I think we'll talk about in a moment, it helps to abstract some of the ideas such as student debt that in a European context haven't quite yet right. played out at the same right. scale. So um, the book, uh, Wages Against Artwork, it opens um, in the sort of moment of the late uh, 1950s, early 1960s, where the um, the potential of the American equivalent of a sort of welfare state, a sort of Keynesian um, organized state that can spend and that can create uh, robust public institutions um, is beginning and is sort of reaching its height. And one of the effects of this in the United States by the mid-1960s, um, early 1970s, was the creation of huge numbers of arts funding institutions that would be at both the federal level and the state level, particularly in states like New York that have big artist population, um, but also the birthing of um, huge numbers of art programs for art artist practitioners in the university. And again, this is I mean, this is nationwide, right? The number of students attending university had expanded, the number of universities had expanded, and now the number of arts programs had expanded. Um, so this is really a moment, both these granting agencies and the expansion of these universities that I would call the commodification of artistic labor or the setting the scene for the ability of artists to commodify their labor. Um, and we need to get our terms straight in the sense that, you know, commodification is often um, rightly, but seen as a pejorative word, right? But at the same time, if you're living in a capitalist society, uh, it's important for you to be able to sell your labor, right? That's how, that's how one lives. That's how one gets from one day to the next. Um, so the book opens with this scene of, in a 1960s, mid-1960s census, you have uh, over a million people in the United States claiming artists as a career on the census form, right? But already by the 1970s, this expansionary moment of um, American liquidity has, has started to be a little bit truncated. And you start to hear about in universities concerns with, well, you know, we're, we're creating this generation of university credentialed artists. I mean, that's new in its own right, right? If you look at the history of art dis, arts discourse, since when do you need to have a credential uh, to be an artist? But we're creating this, this whole sort of um, cohort of credentialed artists, and we're not yet sure where they're going to go, right? So this is a question that starts to emerge um, in the 1970s, but uh, precisely because of uh, the, the historical moment in which this is written, you don't yet have massive forms of student debt, right? You still have sort of robust granting agencies. But you can see that the scene is already sort of being set for the production of artists without the production of employment structures for them to flourish in, right? And really one of the 
main employment structures is going to come to be the university, which is the same place they got their degree, right, and, and went into debt. Um, and now that's the place that they're hoping to get back into. Um, and so this turns into its whole, a whole sort of pyramid scheme of capital. Um, but what I was trying to do is look at what this history, this empirical history, what it could offer um, not only to artists and to art historical discourses, um, but to critical theoretical and Marxist conceptions of labor. And, um, you know, in the last maybe 10, 15 years, we've also had a proliferation of attempts to define what labor is in our contemporary moment, right? So you get terms sort of like, let's say, uh, cognitive labor or digital labor or emotional labor or affective labor. Um, and, and one can go on with these. And, and all of these terms are trying to register a quality of a changed labor in a 21st century developed capitalist economy in the global north. Um, and what I started to wonder is, what what is the term for people who are um, who are highly trained, highly skilled laborers, except they have no place to sell their labor. And I think you could apply this to a, a lot of different populations. But what's unique, and what I realized what's unique in the socially engaged art world is that artists all over the United States were starting to produce as their art um, sort of pseudo-employment situations in which they could be professionalized as artists, as art, but without the wage. Well, a pyramid scheme is definitely an indictment. Well, I guess what you're describing is a situation in which the rerouting of artistic training into universities was exactly what heralded all the ways of thinking and experiencing the problems of labor that we are contending with in today's capitalism. Um, and that in this situation, art, having found itself in the conditions of precarity and so on, um, of competition and employment, it participates in attempts to undo some of the problems which it has contributed to bringing about. Well, it, it, you know, it creates the problem and resolves it in what Althusser would say is an ideological way, which is sort of an imaginary way, right? It, it offers artists a chance to present and resolve um, this problem, but the absolute resolution of the problem would be for them to get a wage, and that it doesn't offer, right? And so it takes on the quality of a kind of ghostly representational economy in which you have these socially engaged artists um, making institutions, galleries, exchange networks, barter networks, um, sort of quasi-employment relations, many of which mimic a welfare state as art, but doing so without a wage. Um, and the, the reason that I titled the book as a sort of, um, you know, tribute to the contradiction that Silvia Federici noted in the 1970s with her essay, Wages Against Artwork, um, was to say that the wage, the artist wage in particular, has come to hold this central contradiction of 21st century developed capitalism, where you have... Um, an expansion of a group of people who not only are 
ready and willing and skilled and able to work um, and don't have the ability to do so, but who are now creating these sort of aesthetic worlds in which they can do so, but still without recompense. Right. And this is the paradox with which Silvia Federici contended in the context of domestic women's labor. So I think one of the really important things that Federici diagnosed in the contradictory title of her essay, Wages Against Artwork, or sorry, Wages Against Housework, uh, is that the wage is needed, but it's not enough. It can't get us out of that relationship, right? And so I tried to, to use that term uh, to really diagnose this moment in arts production, art circulation, art criticism, where those members of that community that are participating in it certainly need wages. People need to be able to reproduce themselves socially. Um, but this whole chapter started in the 1970s by giving them wages, and the wages have slowly disappeared, right? So it, the, the contradiction remains that wages are needed and wages are not enough. There has to be a different mechanism of social reproduction put in place to have a different kind of art culture. I don't think we yet know what that is. Um, I think what, the, what my book does is it attempts to sort of grasp the the contradiction of the wage and its relationship to a certain kind of arts production at this moment in time. But one other thing that I do want to stress um, is the concept of decommodified labor is, is, I hope, a way to categorize how people work in the present that's not dependent on a technological infrastructure, right? So if you think of a notion like computational labor or digital labor, um, you, you have this idea that it's, it's really reflective of an increased age of platform capitalism or a digital age or a computational age. Um, but, my, you know, my reading of Marx and my reading of what technology is, is at a certain level of abstraction, it's really unchanging, right? And we don't need to have the qualifications of a particular kind of technology, digital, computational, cognitive uh, labor to denote this contradiction. I think the contradiction that we're now in, particularly in cultural industries, and, and I'm not just talking about now art, I'm talking about film, I'm talking about television production, I'm talking about sports, which is a huge industry globally, um, is that you can work as though you were formally employed with all the strictures that a job entails and provides and do so without a wage, right? So you are working, you, you are working in formal labor, you are subject to the codes of formal labor, but you're unwaged. And that to me is a different and important term. And that's what I meant to qualify and categorize with decommodified labor. Right. And the, the range of examples which you cite in the book indicates the phenomenon of unpaid labor is definitely on the rise. Where you recently wrote an article in which you chastise a US university for advertising essentially unpaid jobs which um, are passed under the guise of volunteering. And this kind of unwaged work is something that I can attest to is pretty much the norm in the former institutional and commercial art world, let alone in artistic production itself. What I find interesting in your account is that you place this development within the other end of the academy, that it's not necessarily in academic employment, but in in the study, in student life itself. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, the book, yeah, the book opens uh, with this question of, you know, what is it that a student does uh, when he or she or they is 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 doing what working to be a student studying to be a student I mean the verb will will almost give it away um, but again to go back to my my sort of empirical history um, by the time of the mid 1970s and the beginning of the sort of collapse of the of the Keynesian of the post-war Keynesian order in the United States you have movements of students both in New York and in Massachusetts who are making the claim, right, what we are doing is labor. It's not only that we should not have to go in debt or not have to pay to be university students, we should be paid to do it, right? They're making the claim, the time has come to expand the category of laborer to include student. Um, and so we hold that moment in suspension and then look at the work of uh, Cassie Thornton who is who graduates with her MFA um, in 2012? Um, who was able to register as her senior thesis project the laboring conditions of what she and her uh, fellow cohort of MFA practitioners were doing, and she makes the claim not that we should be considered workers. I mean, I think that claim is explicit, but she makes the claim what art students are learning to do in an MFA program is to produce indebtedness as a condition of their own education. And she has this, what I think is a very powerful phrase, which is uh, debt is medium, right? So if you think about what a medium is in an art historical context, um, it's, a, it's a sort of um, temporospatial material that allows you to test the bounds of a concept, um, a materiality, a situation, but it, it provides the sort of boundedness of the operation that you're going to be working in. Um, so we can think of, you know, film as medium or paint as medium or marble as medium or the plastic arts, what, whatever it is. And what Thornton says is our, our medium in the United States in MFA programs is debt. That's what we're learning to do. We're learning how to be in debt and manage debt, and see debt, and sculpt debt, and understand debt. Um, and I found that to be such a sort of um, powerful claim. And through meeting her and working with her, she was one of the people in the show I mentioned, To Have and To Owe, um, I also came to realize, and this is a history that um, Yates McKee, who's a contemporary critic, also um, touches on in his book, Strike Art, um, but that many of the people who organized Occupy Wall Street uh, and who were able to produce this sort of powerful culture intervention with something like the Rolling Jubilee, which was a call for a, a jubilee against debt, came out of the cultural industries. And many of them were, in fact, artists and art workers who no longer had work. And so I wanted to use those examples to begin the book to sort of situate what does it mean to be an artist who has to train through the university, but in training through the university becomes a kind of indebted worker who now considers that debt as part of the conditions that you know he, she, or they will be using to produce the art? Right. And I 
I think this takes on a completely new relevance right now during the pandemic, because art schools, of course, continue to educate student artists, while it remains completely unclear um, whether the types of practices that they are being trained in will remain relevant when they graduate. And of course, at the same time, artists are being compelled to continue practicing and producing. It's, it's a kind of an imperative, you know, publish or perish or rather exhibit and produce or or become irrelevant. Um, and artists are also perversely, I think, are the ones being charged with finding creative ways to overcome the very crisis by which their industry is being consumed. So I think in a way we're facing a situation where we have supply and we have demand, but we don't have a clear way of matching the two under what we understand as traditional institutional structures. Yeah, I mean, um, the book, um, I try to sort of uh, weave a narrative through the book. So we were just talking about chapter one in which I sort of set the conditions for what does it mean to train as an artist in the United States, particularly a socially engaged artist? How did those conditions get to be the case? Um, and then where do you go um, once you have um, sort of graduated, you've gotten your credential, you've gotten your debt? Um, and yet it's, it's unclear that there are institutions or institutional spaces commensurate with the number of um, artists who would like to be participating in those spaces. Chapter two, then, is about artists who feel the need to make their own institutions. And I think this is something else that we notice in the early 2000s or early aughts um, up through the 2010s is um, a proliferation of artists sort of saying, okay, there are no institutional spaces of the kind we trained to um, exist in and to circulate them. So we're going to have to start making our own institutional spaces. And those institutional spaces will, on the one hand, be artistic spaces. And on the other hand, they will be our art, right? So there's really an expansion of what, of, what it means to have a sort of art installation or, or art situation um, when it comes to an art project can now be a multi-year institution involving multiple people. But uh, at the same time, you need to have, you need to have a population to fill those institutions. And I think now we enter into a sort of space that someone like um, Claire Bishop has certainly noticed in her work on socially engaged art, where she sort of asks, you know, what's the relationship between socially engaged art and the proliferation of socially engaged art and the waning of the welfare state, right? So a welfare state might do something like provide medical care. Again, the current moment of the pandemic really frames that lack quite um, starkly, I think. Uh, it might provide education. Uh, it might provide social services. And what I really took from Claire Bishop um, and her work, Artificial Hells, is that a lot of socially engaged artists make social infrastructures of the kind that a welfare state might make were there a welfare state, um, all they do, they do so as art, which what does that mean? They don't do it as scale, right? So one of my favorite um, examples of this is by an artist named Zachary Gao, who did a piece um, called uh, Dentistry at the Museum, um, in which he brings a mobile dental clinic to a museum in Portland, Oregon. Um, so, you know, in the United States, obviously many people don't have health insurance, but even fewer people have dental insurance. Um, so there's a crisis of teeth, right, to add to our list of crises and a crisis of uh, dental care. 
Um, so his socially engaged art project was to offer dentistry at this museum. Um, but of course, not for very long and not for that many people. And that's one of the differences between a socially engaged artwork and a social welfare institution, um, the scale at which it operates. And one of the things that artists have begun doing in their building of these sort of um, para-institutions um, to engage a social welfare-like lack in a sort of contemporary capitalist society is doing what, you know, reformers and um, social engineers and liberators have been doing for hundreds of years, which is um, trying to incorporate children into these spaces, right? Um, and, uh, I mean, there, there are sort of multiple reasons why socially engaged artists start to show up in public school. Um, and, and, you know, those are also very interesting and they're also indicative of our current moment. One is that, um, well, schools used to have art programs. They used to have an art teacher. In the United States, mostly that is no longer true. Instead, a school will invite a socially engaged artist to come in and do something as their artwork with the children for a small amount of time. Um, and I mean, that's, that's problematic in itself, right? If my, if, if my critique, which is what, it, you know, in the book, my critique is that Socially engaged art is trying to claim a space to critique and understand the relationship between art, labor, and economy and our current moment. And one of the effects of that is that more often than not, the artist gets portrayed or portrays uh, themselves as an uncompensated worker, which they are. Then how do we account for children in that scene, right? What is a child? And one of the larger theoretical debates that I try to engage in in every chapter in the book, and what to me seems really sort of our two contemporary uh, perspectives for understanding the economy, is the sort of neoliberal perspective and the kind of Marxist perspective, right? And I don't even mean neoliberal as, in a sense, um, a, a proactive term. I mean it as a sort of critical term, right? Like, should we understand an artist, to use your own language at the beginning of the interview, uh, should we understand an indebted artist as somebody who is, quote unquote, made a bad investment in themselves? That's really to adopt a certain neoliberal idiom. Or should we understand them as somebody who is unwaged, who does not have labor to sell? That's to adopt a much more sort of Marxist idiom. And children don't necessarily fit into either of those uh, schools those theoretical schools, right? Um, I'm talking to you from London. I mean, London has quite a history of, you know, child labor, <laughs> as you know, but for the most part, um, it's in the, in the global North, we no longer have children working. It's true. We have them working throughout the world, but mostly in, uh, you know, capitalist democracies of the global North, children are not allowed to work. In the United States, they have not been allowed to work um, since the 1930s, since 1938. Um, at the same time, we can't really speak of children as debtors or as people who are making their own investments, right? What does it mean for an eight-year-old to invest in themselves? Um, but certainly the neoliberal economists were very concerned about the kind of investments that society makes in children. And so someone like uh, Gary Becker has a wonderful article called um, 
the quantity versus quality theory of how many children to have, where he tries to parse like, is it better to have more children and give them fewer resources or fewer children and give them more resources? What is the sort of equilibrium moment for this? So what I was wondering is, given this sort of disparate history that I've just mapped out, where you have socially engaged artists in schools, and given these theoretical perspectives, which don't necessarily include a role for children, what do we make of the fact now that multiple socially engaged artists include children in their artworks, right? Um, and one of my, one of my favorite um, pieces that I write about in that chapter um, is from the, um, the Canadian um, arts group called Mammalian Diving Reflex. And they do this piece called Haircuts by Children. Um, where they actually sort of ask us to critique our own bourgeois sentimentality of a child can't be paid, a child can't work, a child is a sort of protected class. And as their artwork, they enfranchise children to become workers, but only for a moment, right? Um, so I'm really trying to sort of critique what are the bounded, what is the boundedness of the child as a potential worker, as a potential debtor, and how do they circulate in art pieces to expose each of that type of boundedness? Well, this is something I very much appreciate about the book. I think that by bringing children into the equation, um, you you produce a situation where we can catch certain boundaries and links between the work as an economic subject and the wider capitalist system in a way which we would probably otherwise not be able to examine. And I think there's an inherent difficulty otherwise in understanding an artwork's parallel aspirations to critique a set of conditions and the artwork's desire to alter these conditions and the artist's desire to benefit from such an alteration themselves. It strikes me that art probably isn't the only discipline in which this kind of paradigm of work without a worker plays itself out. Absolutely. But I think, I mean, I really think, you know, and when I talk about the book and, and one of the um, parallels I often make is to professional sports. I think it's a very interesting analogy, right? For multiple reasons. One is professional sports dominated by decommodified labor right? You go, to a, you go to a professional golf event or a basketball event or a tennis tournament, football, the Super Bowl, the majority of the people, quote unquote, working there uh, are, are volunteering. You volunteer and you get selected to, to work at these places. Um, so the whole thing is this sort of skeletal crew of decommodified laborers hoping to get a peek at, you know, Tiger Woods or Serena Williams or what have you. But the difference is, um, sports has an amateur and community quality to it that art has at certain points had, like a community theater, art event, right? But that the sort of professionalization of art, particularly in the United States, has started to efface, right? So um, a, a sort of extended example, you know, if I, um, as a writer, decide to take up tennis and you know, pay for a few lessons and start playing on my public courts. No one is there telling me, you know, keep it up. You might be the next Serena Williams. Like it could just be around the corner. You know, it's like 
No, Serena Williams is Serena Williams, and there cannot be that many of her, right? It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen for most people. But in in arts education in the United States, like you're going a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand dollars into debt. Yeah, you want to hear that you're going to be the next or, or whoever it is, and that fiction has to be operative, right? Now, if that educational structure were different, if it were, um, you know, you're participating in community theater, a community art space, a community art show, there's no hope of professionalization. This is not a site of professionalization. This is not going to be a site of wage labor. This is something else. It doesn't mean that it's not serious, that it's not enjoyable, that it can't proliferate, that it can't be critiqued, right? But the, the professionalization of artists in the United States at the level that we've seen since the 1970s has led in a direction of indebtedness and disenfranchisement. Mm, right. So what I find valuable in your characterization here is, is that it does not rely on references to the forces of the art market. Um, and in that, it avoids relying on this most obvious manifestation of capital as this kind of one-size-fits-all bogeyman. I think in the book you paraphrase Adorno um, in stating that an artist is essentially a poor person with social capital, right? Um, but then we do have this problem that when the social capital could maybe, just maybe, be in some way exchanged for real capital, that is the capital of the art market, even if that's not a prospect in reality. You know, it's. I think the art market, it's such an interesting question. It, you're right to ask about it because it sort of hangs over the book as a kind of specter of, is this a different art world entirely? Is there a relationship between the kind of artists that I write about and somebody like, for example, Richard Serra, who I write about briefly um, in one of the chapters? Um, is Can we even talk about an art market? You know, um, in the United States, there's a critical university studies scholar named Bar Mark Bosquet, um, and he riffs on this phrase often, the job market. Uh, so when, when PhD students graduate, they're told that they're going to spend a few years, quote unquote, on the market, right? And that there's a job market. And he says, this is a total fallacy. There is no market, right? As though there were a place where if you get a PhD, particularly in the humanities, right, there's a site that you might go and sell your wares and someone might be there to buy it and you might negotiate a kind of price as though we're an Adam Smith, you know, back in the wealth of nations. Because it doesn't exist. It's not, it, it is not there. It's not real. And I think that the quote unquote art market, you can probably make a similar case for. I think that, and I don't have, I don't have, um, research on this. This is more sort of uh, circumstantial evidence and hearsay. But I think that aside from the blue chip galleries, I think many galleries are run as sort of uh, pet projects and art projects in themselves. And people don't hope to make money from them. They, they hope, hope to foster a community, right? And people hope to meet other people and to allow a space for work to flourish and to allow a space for criticism to flourish. Why is that couched in the terms of a potential art market? I think that's already indicative of a larger problem. Now, I think at the elite levels uh, where you do, you can speak of a global art market, then you also need to think speak of things like currency exchanges and money laundering and all the rest of it, right? I mean, then we're talking about a kind of high financial world that I think is quite removed from the immediate concerns of the book. Um, and I think certainly at its best, 
that's one of the things that socially engaged art can do and must do is really a, provide a sort of language and an idiom and a sort of visual and material iconography in which to criticize even the idea of the art market. I think that needs to happen. I think in a lot of the work I, I look at in the book, um, the artists try to produce that and, and, and in some cases really do, and I think do a wonderful job of criticizing it. At the same time, the language of the quote unquote art market does not just come from artists and art institutions. I mean, it's the language that saturates our present. And it's very hard to completely disarticulate oneself from such a hegemonic language and way of speaking. And I mean, you know, these terms that, you know, they seem quite picayune and, and non-important, something like stakeholder or our brand or accountability. I mean, they're just a set of horrible terms that come out of 1970s neoliberal economics that somehow in the United States, at least, people who really should know better, like, you know, left-wing magazines and left-wing commentators and people in universities have adopted this and tried to use this as a critical language to talk about our contemporary state of economic affairs. And we need a new vocabulary. We need a new vocabulary to have that kind of conversation. And I do think that that's what these socially engaged artists are trying to do. Um, when, you know, what I hope my contri contribution to that vocabulary is, is to say we need to specify what kind of labor is subtending and maintaining those institutional spaces. And that's precisely decommodified labor. I want us to go a tiny bit deeper into the problem of language and complexity. Um, in your previous book, Scandal and Obstruction, you described the way in which the language of finance and markets, um, which is, of course, very jargonistic and impenetrable, is the very thing that makes finance a complex and therefore autonomous discipline. This is of interest to me partly because of my own research that looks at how art interacts with knowledge systems of other disciplines, but even more so because in one of my former lives, I used to work in the financial services industry. And, and my experience there was that once one gets through the door, the whole thing becomes actually very easy. And I mean that it's easy to perform, but it's also easy, in a sense, to critique on its own terms. And in that light, the linguistic tendency towards impenetrability at the disciplinary perimeter is very counterproductive and troublesome. So I wonder if there isn't some kind of a capitulation that we can identify here. Hmm. Um, I think it's a great, I think it's a great question. And I'm really glad that you um, included in that question, um, the fact that for those of us, or for those of you who work in financial services and investment banking, uh, the language of complexity and impenetrability and obfuscation does not saturate your daily work lives, right? When you're putting together a derivative contract and selling it, you know precisely what it is, right? Um, so um, I, I think it's it's such an important point. I mean, the whole world is complex. You know, cancer is complex. The coronavirus is complex. Plenty of things are complex. The question is, when does the genre, when does the language of complexity become so all pervasive that it can sort of stand alone? And um, for me, um, in an article that I wrote called The Rules of, of Abstraction, uh, which was trying to track this question of how did finance come to be seen as complex? What one of the sites or one of the moments where I would say it becomes hegemonic is when it's used to both propagate 
and criticize the object, right? So in the wake of the 2007-2008 the, the um, global credit crisis, you had the bankers and the industry and the government, you know, all the sort of um, actors of that crisis, enabling it, profiting off of it, producing it, they were all using the language of complexity, right? At the same time, you also had critics of that. And I'm counting someone like, uh, at, at his most popular, someone like Michael Moore, um, a sort of gonzo progressive journalist in the United States, or uh, multiple academics. I mean, I hear this all the time at, academics confer- at academic conferences. You have academics also using the language, saying, well, how can we engage this as academics, given that it's so complex? So there's a moment where the situating of the idiom and the situating of the language stops and breaks down. It's accepted as given. Then it becomes hegemonic. Then it becomes much more difficult to criticize in a kind of free-flowing and um, engaged way. Then you have to start producing a history of the terminology itself, even getting to the point of having a conversation about it, which is, you know, necessary. That's what academic knowledge is. Well, to get, get back to Wages Against Artwork, in your next chapter, which is entitled Artwork Animal, you, you potentially offer a way to bypass languages altogether. Um, it's a step on from the idea of children art workers, which you discussed in previous chapter. And yet you open this discussion with an incredibly charged image of of a work by the artists Sun Yan and Peng Yu, in which we see two aggressive dogs chained into a pair of treadmills in such a way that they cannot attack each other, even though it's clearly precisely what they want to do. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, we talked about the, at the beginning of the interview, we talked a little about the organic development of the book and um, I said I first came to this book by looking at artists in debt and then looking at artists sort of creating their own para-institutions. Um, and, you know, as I was in New York and going to galleries and going to show like Brooklyn Crossing, which is a big show about um, socially engaged art that took place at the Brooklyn Museum in 2014, um, it, you know, it was just a sort of, I just noticed there are so many birds in galleries now. I mean, we've, we've passed the taxidermy point, right? That was a, a maybe like a 1990s um, kitsch aesthetic, early 2000s. Now it's like in the work of Mark Dion or Duke Riley, who I write about, or um, the artist you just mentioned. Um, they're actual animals, right? I mean, I, I, it started with birds, but then once you start to notice, there are animals everywhere. Um, and there was a restaging of the Giannis Kunelis, his wonderful piece, the Untitled 12 Live Horses. And this was just a sort of genuine moment of uh, question and revelation for me when I just asked myself, I was, I was starting to work on a book about unwaged artists. And I, I had this question, why are there animals everywhere in contemporary art? And then the answer just dawned on me, oh, it's because they can't be paid, right? You cannot pay an animal. Um, if you want to, you can't pay an animal. They don't seem to have recognizable systems of payment of the type that we would know how to interact with. Um, so there was a just sort of immediate representational concern of, okay, the animal stands in for the artist who can't be paid, right? 
but while the artist can make a claim on his or her own non-payment, um, the animal can't really do that, right? So the animal becomes its own sort of um, obscure device for um, existing in the gallery space to represent multiple sites of non-payment, not just the artist, but probably the person who owns the gallery, probably the interns, probably the art students. I mean, there's a whole network of non-payment. There's a whole network of decommodified labor that exists that it seems to me that the animal was coming to stand in for. At the same time, in criticism of these pieces, particularly something like the Giannis Kunelis piece, um, which you know put on by Gavin Brown, a big blue chip gallery, it got a lot of attention. The animal itself was being referred to as an artist, right? And sometimes even an art worker. So you have the actual art workers who can't be paid attending to an animal in a gallery who has no possibility of payment. The gallery conditions of the worker and of artwork are not really being described. And yet the animal has been transposed into an art worker who can't be paid for an entirely different set of reasons. Um, and it just it seemed like such a rich confluence of theoretical problems. And it's also the chapter in which I think I, I am able to really use the animal to criticize and try to resituate what Marx meant uh, in his development of the concept of labor, right? That's certainly one of the terms um, that has been most motivating for me um, as a writer, as a critic. Um, in works of literature and certainly in looking at works of arts, right? What is labor? What produces value? What produces surplus value? What does it mean to work? Um, and one of the things that I'm really proud of that I think I do in the book is, um, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an important part of my methodological process. I try to really dist distill what a concept is, and then I try to show what the limits of that concept are. Um, as they circulate, as that concept circulates in different spaces. And for Marx and for Marxism, um, an animal cannot be a laborer, right? Um, they, they don't sell their time. That's, that's for Marx what it means to be a laborer. It's not that you sell your energy. It's that you sell, your, you sell yourself for a certain period of time to somebody else. And that is time which, on the one hand, you can never get back. On the other hand, you then have to find your own time to regenerate yourself to return to work the next day. That is an economy that an animal does not participate in. Um, and I tried to use that uh, juxtaposition to show the limits of what artistic labor can be taken to be in a Marxist concept. And in the book, that's something that I hew very closely to. So I, I come down in the chapter um, on animals in the book where I say, we can't call these animals art workers, even though they are in art and are representing work. That does not a worker make, right? Um, and this is a very long conversation in Marxism. You know, uh, in the 19th century, right, can you consider slaves workers? They're not waged. Um, at the same time, they clearly produce surplus value. This is a conversation that Silvia Federici is having, having in other Italian feminists in the 1970s. What is housework? It's, it's not wage, but it clearly assists in social reproduction. And I think that animals sort of offer a new instantiation of that. 
They can't work, but they also can't be put in debt. And in that sense, they're very similar to children. And we also often find these two grouped together. Um, so that's the chapter for me that I think on the one hand was the most engaging to write because I myself love animals and love to look at them. I'm you know, sort of a Philistine in that way. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I think it's, it's, I, I almost feel the most distance from that chapter now because I think I've, I've maybe rejected some of the claims that I myself make in that. I'm not rejected, but I don't know how helpful they are. Right. I don't know how helpful the kind of categorical critique that I provide in that chapter is. Well, all the same, I know for a fact that this hasn't deterred you from engaging with the animal kingdom as a practical theoretical lens. Yeah, I'm, I'm um, you know, I'm working on a new book now that's called uh, Marks for Cats, uh, a radical bestiary, uh, which is a history of capitalism from its you know, sort of feudal prehistory, I would guess, uh, into its sort of early colonial and merchant capital moments through its Keynesian and financialized moments. So it's a history of capitalism only narrated through how cats appear as figures of both uh, critique, um, but also as figures of a kind of propagation of a certain form of capital. Um, so for example, you know, I'm talking to you from London, uh, Great Britain as an imperial power has made ample use of the lion uh, for hundreds, if not over a thousand years, depending on how we want to construct the genealogy. But of course, workers' actions against uh, employers, against imperial powers are often referred to as wildcat strikes. Um, so the book is a compendium of images and um, stories um, and political economists writing themselves in which the cat functions as a critical figure. Um, but the, the project itself had its genesis with one of the artists I write about in Wages for Artwork, Caroline Woolard, um, and another artist uh, named Orzubalski. Um, and we were, we were talking uh, about one of the things that, that, I, that I feel quite proud of uh, about the book and that I really enjoy hearing is when artists say, um, they say, as artists, we need to have uh, more of a vocabulary and more of a conceptual familiarity with the kind of economic terms that you present in the book. And would it be possible to have a kind of glossary of them? And I, I, I appreciate that. It seemed like not exactly the kind of project I want, wanted to work on. But then um, I think it was Caroline Willard suggested, she said, well, what if what if instead we did a series of lectures about Marx's key terms, but you gave them to cats, right? She's everyone loves cats. And uh, so we decided to just sort of try it. And it turned out that the cats absolutely loved the lectures. Um, and in certain key moments, like Marx's writing on the class wars in France, you know, the cats started fighting each other when I'm talking about class war. So they seem to, they seem to, have a kind of interest in the material itself. And we did a series of videos, me lecturing to the cats, what is finance capital? What is labor? What is alienated labor? What is surplus value? What is a bourgeois democracy? Why is the bourgeoisie the most revolutionary class? And, and people were quite interested in it. Um, but video and film is not my, is not my metier. So I just started started to explore, would it be possible to turn this into a kind of artist book or a kind of 
uh, book-length treatment of the relationship between Marxism as a critique of political economy and the cat as both a symbol of uh, empire in terms of the lion or a symbol of um, sort of fierce revolt in terms of the tiger or a series of refusals to work in terms of the wildcat. Um, and it's developed into its own kind of uh, sprawling project, uh, which starts in the in the ninth century or actually the eighth century AD uh, with Charlemagne uh, in what is today France and Germany, sort of reconstituting a post-imperial um, transnational space in Europe through his use of the lion um, and, and goes really up until uh, our contemporary moment of, you know, the pussy hats that greeted the, the Trump uh, presidency and the pussy revolts, um, you know, but also all of these arcane financial terms. So in finance, uh, when, when traders are trading and they, they realize that um, a stock is going to drop quickly, but it's not a real drop in value, it will quickly come back. It's called a dead cat bounce, right? Or we have the Asian tigers as, as leading the sort of global economic formation in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, so it's an exciting book, but it's a book that I think makes use of animals, not, I don't know that I would still say as laborers, but certainly as comrades and colleagues, right? And in that sense, I think the book is a little bit at odds with the chapter on animals and wages against artwork, where I really sort of toe the Marxist line. Whatever it is that animals are doing in socially engaged artwork, uh, it's not work because animals don't labor. That's not the appropriate category for them. And I think this also functions, uh, hopefully Marks for Cats will function as a sort of critique of Marxism and Marxist political economists per se. It, you know, why is it important to have that species boundary? What do we get from it, right? Um, but also what shape should criticism take and should what kind of pleasures and entertainment should criticism offer? You know, can criticism be fun. I mean, Marx himself was a, he was a quite funny writer and I don't, I don't, I don't pretend to um, have his literary gifts. Right. But I think there's a, there's a question in the contemporary academy of, um, you know, so many people in the academy work as adjuncts. So many people um, train for jobs that don't exist uh, the debt it produces, the misery it produces, what what do we get out of sustaining these conversations and who are they for, right? And I think what I'm trying to do in Marks for Cats is hopefully enlarge that audience, but also enlarge what criticism could be, right? And really think about criticism as a project of joy and humor and fun and pleasure, uh, which is quite anathema to many Marxists, <laughs> you know, for many decades. I mean, not all, but many. Well, we'll certainly be applauding your endeavor to expand audiences for Marxist criticism to, to cats, and perhaps you even find a whole new mission for the Academy and maybe even for art. Well, we'll see. We'll see about that. Well, I just have to reassure our listeners who might be finding this project as amusing as I do, um, that it is indeed a serious enterprise, even if I spent all of last night watching cat videos. Um, I'll include some links in the show notes and I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend them. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, there we have it, a case for working with children and animals, if we ever heard one. Lee Claire, thank you so very much for joining me on the New Books Network. Thank you for having me.
Lee Claire-Laberge's book Wages Against Artwork is published by Duke University Press. I'm Pierre Delancey. Join us next time.